0: stage four and five and my hypothesis is that who are in stage four and five they have a higher ai innovation index and because of that they will have a longevity on fortune 500 or global 2000 and they'll have sustainable competitive advantage
1: data artificial intelligence the metaverse crypto and web 3 and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. This next guest is Ritu Jyoti. Ritu is the Group Vice President, AI and Automation Research and Advisory at IDC, the analyst firm. Um, she drives IDC's AI thought leadership and manages a team of analysts conducting groundbreaking research and consulting in AI, machine learning, deep learning, conversational AI, computer vision, and intelligence auto- automation. Now, Ritu is actually a very interesting um thought leader because she brings in not just the research experience being a part of a research firm but she was always an operator before that in her career working with companies like IBM and Dell and EMC and she has practical experience bringing disruptive technologies and providing business value with that. So I had a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Ritu, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? Is it uh, sunny in Boston?
0: Uh, I can't claim it to be sunny. We're expecting a nor'easter. So thank you, Ganesh, for asking. Uh, but, you know, we Bostonians love it. So I, I'm not complaining either. And uh, yeah, awesome. it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
1: That's awesome. Ritu, why don't we start off with your personal story? Talk us about your journey. Um, and, you know, I know what, I, what fascinates me is you're an analyst right now at IDC and you run the entire uh, you know, the research community for that, but you also have a lot of experience as a practitioner in the industry, right? So give, give us your story if you don't mind.
0: Sure, absolutely. So before I start sounding aged or ancient, I've been in the industry for over 25 years. And uh, over these years, you know, I've been extremely privileged to actually have had the capacity or the opportunity to work for very large organizations, as well as smaller organizations. And as you rightfully said, uh, before I joined IDC, I didn't know what analyst really did. This is my first time becoming an analyst, but uh, I've been majority of my career has been a practitioner. I actually started my career as a developer, but I was always very curious as to why am I doing this? What is it going to impact, you know, and how is it going to impact? And I am extremely grateful to my manager who, uh, you know, spotted my curiosity and said that I think you will be better fit for a product management role. So the majority of my career has been a product management. And I, would, uh, I also have had the opportunity to work for, you know, a management consulting firm like Coopers, and, you know, working across hundreds of customers worldwide and gaining so much firsthand for them. And then, uh, you know, just before I joined IDC, I was the chief product officer of a high tech startup. And uh, for my own personal reasons, I was kind of, you know, enjoying my gigs and trips to Israel, but it was too much after four years. (laughs) After I got the company into a good state, I think I had to move on. And so I moved on to IDC and I'm enjoying my gig here as well right now.
1: That is awesome. Give us a flavor for what your gig is all about, right? I mean, there's research, there's consulting, there's a whole gamut of things. So give us a flavor for it.
0: Sure, sure. So in my current role, I'm basically leading the AI and automation research practice here at IDCA. And uh, part of our job is definitely to do the market research, but we also do advisory services. That's what you kind of call as consulting. So in the market research, we are kind of, calling the future, tracking the future, what's really going to happen, all the cool stuff. And I am so, so excited that I get the opportunity to work with some of the brilliant minds at IDC and we're covering, you know, the entire technology stack of AI. So there are colleagues in the company who are focused on the infrastructure side, there are colleagues in the company who are focused on the cutting edge software side. But I personally focus on actually bridging the gap between the technology and the business side. So a lot of times, you know, as you and I were chatting just before we started this session, is that people get into the extreme technical details, which is important, and don't get me wrong. But uh, you know, we really was looking at that there was a big gap that AI. A lot of times, people just bucket it into a technology thing, but for AI adoption to grow, organizations have to be ready. There has to be a cultural shift. Organizations really need to know. The C-suite, you know, I started off building an AI strategy program where I spoke about what are the business changes that the organizations have to go to through? How do they kind of find that strategy? Who are the personas who are going to be involved? Um, you know, how do they decide which cases to prioritize? How do they kind of measure the business outcomes? So my uh, research is actually focused on 20% on the future. of the business side and 40% of the core software, which covers the entire gamut, you know, right from conversational AI to computer vision to uh, the machine learning whole life cycle. But my team members, they focus much more deeper into each of these areas. And as you know, IDC is very, very well positioned in having industry specific analysts. So uh, we actually, you know, a massive amount of transformation is happening in those areas. So I get the opportunity to collaborate with them, whether it is in the retail side or whether it is in the financial services or manufacturing and learn, you know, how uh, you could leverage AI to kind of make an impact. And we also have feet on the ground across the globe. So I get to collaborate with all the regional analysts as well.
1: That's that's amazing. Uh, you know, you you're you have such a unique vantage point on what's happening across the globe. And I love what you said, which is like twenty percent of the future, and then forty percent on the business value and what's happening today in the market. So let me ask that back to you, right? What is the state of the industry with AI, right? And I know, like five six years ago, if we were talking, people were trying to experiment and trying to learn about AI. The conversation has shifted pretty dramatically, right? So give us your lay of the land. Where is enterprise AI today?
0: I think that's a brilliant question. You know, I remember in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, or early 2019, I was speaking at an end user conference in Florida. And I remember we had such fun because there was only, you know, a very tiny fraction of the audience who actually believed. And the rest of the people they were asking me that I'm just doing some AI washing there and, you know, it's not it's not real. And uh, they were really asking me, is this just about taking pictures of cats and dogs and recognizing that? And it was hilarious, right? Um, and there were a lot of conversations about kind of dismissing it completely, that it's a hype. Uh, but today, I think 2020 was the year that truly strengthened the value of enterprise AI. I have to say that, you know, while the pandemic caused a lot of challenges for a lot of us and it's still going, But it actually accelerated the enterprise AI adoption, and uh, we all know that it is you know there's tremendous amount of potential. But it it was also important for organizations to kind of you know take that lead forward, take that you know innovation portion forward. So today, actually, on an annual basis, um, I run an annual buyer view survey. So when I ran the survey in 2019 off the top of my head, I think it was less than 10% of the initiatives which were in production. And it was a global, you know, 2,000 buyer personas. And today when I ran it in 2021, it was almost like three-fold increase, three ex- increase. 33% of the initiatives were in production. And I'm anxious to kind of run this this year and see how it goes, uh, because I'm expecting that it must have changed dramatically. Um even when AI is generating value, it still has a lot of challenges. But I actually would like to quote uh, something from uh, an interview that I recently uh, was watching. Uh, I don't know if you have watched it. Maybe you have. Uh, you know, at the Fortune Brainstorm AI 2021, um, yes. the, the CEO and chair of uh, Accenture, Julie Sweet, was being interviewed by the Fortune editor. And there was a session there where she was asked that, you know, uh, what do you think, where is the enterprise, where are the enterprises with AI? And she kind of uh, she very really articulated it very well, which I subscribe to that. That she said, you know, today organizations don't have a choice. You know, the organizations who were already in the journey of digital transformation, they were really, really kind of making difference. But that percentage was so tiny. So then came in the era of, you know, compressed transformation, because people had to kind of be resilient and survive. These organizations, they actually started doing, uh, you know, making rapid use of these technologies. And she said it, that cloud is the enabler, data is the driver, and AI is the differentiator. So, you know, you can actually use cloud and before cloud is available, and we also seen that cloud and AI is driving a virtual cycle of software transformation. And, you know, people have their own private data or their own, you know, uh, data. But tomorrow people will have access to third party data and data will be commoditized. It's how you use this data to create yep. personalized experiences, recommendations, you know. But what was much more interesting, and I subscribe to that very passionately, is that gone are the days when people are going to be using AI just for operational efficiency or cost reduction. Even my survey actually indicated that you know organizations are looking to create innovation out of AI. How can they change their business models? How can they change their business processes? It's not lift and shift. When people were initially moving to the cloud, it was like, okay, how can I virtualize it? How can I, you know, use it, you know, for uh, uh, microservices architecture? But the conversation has gone to the other level. How could you use a collective set of data to actually kind of empower different kinds of experiences. And every day I talk to the startups as well as to the end users, it's just fascinating as to how you know uh, the innovation is happening. So my, my my key message here is that the enterprises, while there are a lot of challenges and we'll talk about some of the challenges, uh, you know, it's it's kind of in the journey of innovation. And uh, if I may share with you, it's a little bit still in works. But I am kind of hypothesizing that organizations who are in the higher adoption maturity, so I have my maturity scape for AI. I put them under five stages. On the left-hand, no surprise, they are the laggards. On the the complete right-hand side, they are the disruptors and the transformers. Stage four and five, and my hypothesis is that who are in stage four and five, they have a higher AI innovation index. And because of that, they will have a longevity on Fortune 500 or Global 2000, and they'll have sustainable competitive advantage. So I'm trying to work on this, but this is resonating very well with a lot of my you know, customers and uh, you know, vendor community yep. that I'm working with. But I completely agree with what Julie was saying, that the, the, the future is actually heading, and it's not just the future like in five years, it's, it's starting to happen today, but in the next two, two three years, it's actually going to be, more focused on the innovative aspects of the business.
1: No, that's fascinating. That's a, what a what a great perspective, Ritu. And to, to summarize or like translate to myself, right? One thing I can definitely, you're you're absolutely right, right? You're moving from, hey, AI is gonna the easiest way to sell into IT for any organization was I'm gonna lower your costs, right? And so that's where everybody started which is saying, hey, you know, AI or automation can automate a lot of those things and stuff like that. So now that conversation has shifted. I love uh, that that quote you mentioned, right? Data, cloud is the infrastructure, data is the driver and AI is the differentiator, right? So now more and more businesses that I'm also engaged with are always looking at it, saying, how can I create um, a quantum leap in what I do today? How can I do things differently? It's not just looking at, you know, everybody started doing this thing. I do something manually, can I automate it using machine intelligence yeah absolutely I think that's the me too part of this thing now some of them who in that four and five of your maturity spectrum are also thinking I've already done that let me just unlock new value within the data what are the unknown unknowns in the data right things like that but the other thing that you mentioned that really is fascinating is that 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 uh, that hypothesis on your maturity curve when the the leaders in four and fifth stages are gonna uh, you know, continue to have, you know, they're going to have a longer longevity in the S&P 500. It's another way to say that the value with AI related business processes or AI in general, it compounds over time, right? So the earlier you start, it's it's the the, the brilliant, you know, uh, the, the nuance of compounded interest, because these are systems that learn from data. And the more you put that in production, the more you learn from those mistakes and, you know, the more you learn from that experience. So I think it's it's fascinating you say that. I think um, I'm looking forward to that that hypothesis coming out as a as a research report or something. But I think it's um, you're so right. AI's value compounds, so that means companies who have already gone to the other end um, may actually stay there longer. It's going to be harder for others to catch up, right? And the other way, uh, the other thing that I actually also think about in this regard is, uh, you know, it's the It's 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 hard to actually compete in the age of AI. Even now, the the field is you know uh, uh, wide open. There's still a lot of things that most companies can do to get to there. But there will be a time in the next five to six years where it's going to be impossible to um, gain a leadership over someone who's already in four or five, right? Um, so it, it, thanks for sharing that. I think let me ask the flip side. You you talked about the challenges in adoption today, right? Um, what are you seeing? What are you viewing? Uh, what does your research tell you in terms of what are those buckets of challenges that, uh, organizations are yeah. dealing with?
0: Yeah, yeah, happy to. So we've been doing this research for the last, you know, four to five years on a regular basis, an annual global basis, and also in midterm. Sorry. And uh, and I see that that you know most of the time initially people I mean data continues to be a big problem, right? Data readiness, right? People sure. don't really know where the data is, but it's nothing new. I mean, organizations have had this problem since ages, right? <laughs> the, the nuance comes here is that in the, this case, because the lot of value is going to be extracted from unstructured data. You know, uh, in our research, we see that most of the organizations are just focused on the master data and the transactional data, and they're not tapping the value you look at case use cases by use cases, whether it is in finance, whether it is in retail, whether it is in healthcare in manufacturing, everywhere the real value has to be extracted by unstructured content and organizations have not been ready for that. And that's why you see the you know skyrocket growth of some of these cloud data warehousing companies and all of that, and we'll talk yeah. about it later. So data is there and the concept of data fabric and data mesh that you hear that people are coming up with. But the other area which people are really struggling with is machine learning operations, right? It took a lot of time people to standardize on DevOps, right? It was not really easy. Uh, the data scientists, you know, they were working in isolation, they did not understand, not that—not not only they did not understand, if I have to say respectfully, that uh, they don't want to care about those operations aspect of it, but it's extremely important for scaling it for a company, right? So yes. the coming together of MLOps and DevOps. I have spoken to a lot of customers who told me they actually picked up a DevOps uh, ML solution uh, because they had standardized their, on their DevOps solution, right? And the skill set and talent yep. and all of that. the The third area that we see is that, of course, you know, lack of talent. Then you'll never have, you know, I mean, go after predictions after predictions. You'll never have so much of, uh, you know, data science talent. Uh, And it's actually, in some ways, it's important that the data scientists and the business analysts, the line of business people who understand the business, they come together to kind of create the solution, because that's how the the human aspect, the know-how of the business comes into. And AI is, I mean, I have been a firm believer that AI is all about business value. And because of that, you need to understand the business nuances and not sit in your isolated fancy land and create the best of the algorithms. It's, it's all about putting it to use. And so that is uh, another challenge. The, the other challenge, if I, I am mean, are lots of challenges, you know, a lot of companies tell me that they don't really know where to start. They do not have, you know, a strategic alignment. But I also, you know, from a people and a process perspective, if I have to up level it, I think it's a culture challenge, right? A lot of companies, especially large organizations, Um, you know, in a startup world, you have a risk-taking culture, you have a culture of innovation. Sometimes, you know, larger organizations, they completely miss on that and they completely get lost in it. So uh, today I'm seeing, um, and in fact, even Julie Sweet also in her conversation uh, said that the the C-suite is now getting very much on top of it. And the significant percentage of the C-suite actually express that, you know, AI is going to be a very integral part of their strategy. and uh, But they do not know and they have some paranoia about, you know, uh, from the business risks and potential negative impact. And how do they get ready for that? Because until and unless you create the culture of innovation and a culture of risk taking uh, and with the balance, you know, in a responsible way. Uh, it's, it's going to be difficult because people don't know. And the second thing, which I think you also mentioned is that, Ganesh, is that people are not looking for, there's no point to reinvent the wheel, right? So the hyperscalers, if you think about it, they have created these services. And of course, you know, some of them are very general purpose and businesses are looking for some optimized services in their industry sector or their particular solutions. And there are, there's a lot of innovation happening in that space but it's not at the pace at which the end-user customers would like. Give them the flexibility, give them the choice, but uh, I think that's that's going to happen uh, very soon. There are companies who are working on this to kind of create, like, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the big language models that have been created by open AI in all the world, and and that will help accelerate some of these uh, innovations for the businesses. So. To summarize it, I would say that it's a combination of some technical challenges as well as the business culture and readiness challenges you know from a people in the process perspective
1: uh, that's awesome no I just to summarize I think I love the the way you laid it out and I think you you there is a subset of the cultural uh the the whole business culture kind of or organizational challenges that I want to d- dive deep into but You know, the the untapped unstructured data, as you said, just to summarize, number one. Number two, and I love the way you called it like DevOps, and you can actually relate back to how, you know, when we were doing DevOps back in the day, 10 years ago, and how chaotic it was, right? And the same thing comes in, and AI just being such a collaborative science, we have data engineering, data science, you had design people, you have software engineering coming together. You need to bring in those processes to tie it together in a collaborative fashion to get it from just experiments to production, right? I love the the you know, talent being a big issue. I think we're seeing that all over, right? I think it's still, in fact, I you know, I if I get a dollar or a dime for every time somebody asks me to get introduce them to us a, a machine learning engineer or a an data engineer, you know, I'll be really rich right now, right? So it's a <laughs> it's a it's fascinating. But I think the good news is like. That's what we are trying to do, inspire more people to get into the field, right? Get more talent in it. I love how you said the people process, where to start, how do you organize and stuff. And there's a nuance what you said there, and I, I love the the way you framed it, right? In large organizations and, you know, established organizations, there is a tendency, and rightly so, because then it becomes a risk management function, than a risk-taking function, right? When you're trying to do anything, you're trying to make sure that I'm not bringing the entire network down with 10 billion dollars of business going through by running a small experiment but then how do you use ai as an opportunity to bring that experimentation culture into the leadership into the organization to drive drive innovation i think that's fascinating a very nuanced point that you made and then the last two uh one is you know, you said like look There's a don't reinvent the wheel, just build solutions. Help me solve problems, right? Don't give me another platform to deal with, like (laughs) you talked about, right? Give me applied AI solutions that can solve problems, right? And there's all this great, you know, innovation that's happening, like transformer models, as you said, the large language models. And, you know, now it can be used for images. There's so many things happening. The one nuance that, you know, I'm sure we're going to go there next is on the aspect of culture and helping things Uh, you know, helping organizations come along to solve problems with AI comes the topic of ethics and responsible AI, right? And it's a hot topic. Everybody's talking about it. And we, you know, bounced off a few ideas before we started recording as well. What are you seeing there? So first off, start with a little bit of level setting for everybody saying, what what is ethical AI? Why is it important? And what are organizations doing today?
0: Yeah, I'm smiling because ethical is a little bit of a sensitive word and evokes a lot of emotions and a lot of people yes. kind of, you know, say, is it related to religion? Is it related to culture? And also, I don't want to go any of those places.
1: It's I ethics, personally right? believe,
0: yeah, yeah. I believe that every company, every organization on this planet has their code of ethics as to what are their moral values? How are they going to operate? And they really have to be kind of, you know, cognizant of that fact that, you know, everything that they're trying to do with, uh, you know, AI, while it generates tremendous amount of value, it can have some unintended consequences. So you need to put your code of ethics, you know, and I remember talking about it and put it together a research in 2019. And a lot of people looked at me that I'm kind of some alien talking about something, you know, just trying to kind of go with the AI washing, you know. But the really reality is that every company needs to know that every technology, as it provides you value, it can have unintended consequences. Just the way, you know, I mean, just the way we have heard that, you know, when we used to get those robocalls and it was such a, you know, irritation. So there was software created to actually make sure that you could stop it. You could opt out of it. Right. It's the same thing that you have to do that. Whatever is your code of ethics, are you, uh, you know, if you suppose, you know, if an organization is planning to be more diverse and be more inclusive, and if you're using AI techniques and technology for anything, you know, conversational AI experience or you're hiring, you really need to make sure that, you know, it has the inclusive capabilities, it has the uh, sensitivity of gender, it has the sensitivity of, you know, different language and different, you know, people coming from different areas and diversity. So it's all about that, right? But then I also think that, uh, you know, with the first stage, what was happening is that when the responsible AI was concept was introduced, that you have to do it and that you have to be responsible, whether you're doing it for your own business or you for doing for the consumers. I think a lot of emphasis was put on the technical side of it, that, you know, that uh, uh, go ahead and get your fairness tools and, you know, remember that fair learning and all yeah, of that. Yeah. And it was a lot of, a uh, burden was put on just a data scientist. I think it's unfair. It's it's not about that. It's a collaborative effort. Every part in the organization uh, needs to come together and understand that what are the consequences. There, there are instances that I've heard that the data scientists were not aware of that where these applications were going to be finally used, and if that was exposed to them, perhaps they would have done it something differently or you know taken the right action. So I think initially, you know, we have a framework where we talk about the five um, pillars of responsible AI, fairness, explainability, you know, adversarial robustness, data lineage and transparency and everything. But even, you know, all these model ops tools and ML ops tools, they kind of fall short in the overall AI governance because yes, you're doing the data drift and you're doing the model drift, you're doing the fairness checks and all, which is all important. But the meta point is that how do you mitigate and how do you do AI governance? How do you make sure what are the business risks and how do you do give the business the tools to do put, you know, proactive risk management? So uh, I'm sure you're watching the industry and you're seeing that there are a lot of, you know, innovation happening and it's very much in its early stages happening by most of the startups I haven't seen some very big companies getting too much into the space, even though they have talked about it. Right. But the idea is that. How do you kind of give business the tools to uh, <clears throat> manage all their business risks, whether it is about discrimination, whether it's about data privacy or non-compliance, and you know the negative business impacts that the organizations are concerned about, damage to their brand reputation, you know, can there be a regulatory backlash, and can there be some criminal investigation that can happen against them, or there are hidden costs, right? So I think I think the from an ethics perspective, I very strongly subscribe that it is an organizational play and it's a responsible AI is has to be done with aligned with your organization corporate strategy and with all the personas involved, whether it's your legal and compliance officers. I've seen a lot of organizations now having chief AI officer or chief transformation officer, but I personally believe all those roles are important. It has to start with the CEO of the company. The CEO of the company has to kind of embrace that, you know, and AI has to embrace the culture of risk taking and innovation in a responsible way with the appropriate governance and risk management. Otherwise, I don't want anybody to be a laggard
1: and yeah, be no, written that's, off. That's fascinating, fascinating. Just to, you know, summarize, like, you know, responsibly, I love how you started off saying. When we started this journey and everybody was talking about Responsible AI, even today, it's reflective of where the industry is today. All the onus is about is on the data scientists and the technical community to say, hey, make sure you have enough hooks to give me explainability for those models. Make sure that you have fairness. Make sure you have data observability tools that will ensure that the data is not biased and things like that, but not real enough work being done in the industry on really treating this as saying look this is going to be a fundamental you know almost non living but intelligent organism that's going to drive a business process how do you manage the risk that comes with it right how do you just like you have you know grc and processes for other things you need to have a grc approach and and thanks for calling out things like regulatory risk that can happen like we will have a without fail we'll have the gdpr moment uh moment in in ai very soon right there's enough work happening um, and then there's like part of that. I think the governments, all the work that is happening there, and all the governance, uh, governments as well, the reputational risk. You know, the the nobody wants another taste uh, chatbot. Uh, you know, going on Twitter and spewing obscenities, right? And then the other thing that you call that, which is very interesting, is the the this is a team sport, and this needs to be approached as a how do you drive its CEO down as an organizational risk management while you promote a very experimental and rapidly innovative culture right so you got to it's the you got to look at both sides of the spectrum and go go and paddle across this thing thanks for thanks for sharing those insights that's awesome Ritu now let me actually uh,
0: yeah if I may add one uh, just for the sake of the audience and an example uh, think about you know facial recognition has gotten a lot of you know, flat, right? I mean, and so context-driven risk, AI risk management is very important. Like I lose my batch, my company batch all the time. I mean, of course, right now, we are not going to the office, but think about it. If, you know, biometrics is used, facial recognition is used to get me inside the complex. I think it's going to be fantastic, you know, instead of me kind of, you know, logging into five different systems and logging into, you know, carrying a bath. I mean, that's pretty outdated, but using you know facial recognition should not be banned in all the cases right i mean there are some contexts so context driven ai risk management is important right so and that is why i say it's an organization level decision because there use cases in which uh, it it may not be that bad of an issue it has a lot of potential so it it all depends on that so
1: <laughs> that is awesome no that's awesome can you can you um can you share some examples of some organizations that are really balancing that that approach very well or stories you may not want to name them but you know give me some stories give me some examples for the audience where they're doing it well i love that example on facial recognition
0: yeah yeah you know like think about it you know um there are you know some of the academics you know especially during the pandemic when things went completely upside down for the education system i have seen a lot of positive sides of you know the organizations right so while you know data privacy and personal privacy and all was very very important but at the same time empowering the students with the right set of knowledge and all was equally important and that a lot of these academic universities they uh you know leveraged ai in the most beautiful way in terms of you know being inclusive so the machine translation tools can provide an inclusive environment for students learning in a second language because you know you do not get those special attention the special needs children uh you know, AI-powered transcription tools can transcribe classroom lectures in real time uh for hundreds of enrolled students who are deaf and hard of hearing, right? Those personal touch was missing and, you know, all these. So it was, so these are all very positive. And in this context, you know, just to kind of say one stru- stroke that it is all bad, it's not the right thing. It's the same thing, you know, in the academic uh, setup, I, I saw that uh, conversational AI tools, you know, and first of all, I have to acknowledge that the uh, chatbots and conversational AI digital assistants, their maturity and accuracy has grown by leaps and bounds, right? I mean, uh, you know, if we all remember, you know, 2015 and 16, how it was and how it is today. So uh, students, you know, they're not getting that personal one-on-one touch during the, you know, class. Now they can actually get their answers, be answered through, uh, you know, chatbots and digital assistants in real time and get their students' questions answered properly. So these are these are phenomenal in the right way of using without you know making sure of course they are taking care of that the platform that is being used is devoid of adversarial robustness you know it cannot be attacked you know there's no manipulation so all that is being taken care of but look at the positive outcomes.
1: That is awesome, Ritu. Now let's think that so the world is um, a lot different now, but it's also what an amazing time to be alive, right? Because it's just. The, the acceleration of all these innovations that led to the moment that we are in right now. So it's fascinating. Why don't we uh, close out with your predictions for 2022? So what do you see in AI across the market? What are your, you know, give me, I know you do a lot of those predictions, but I want to get your thoughts on what, what those are for 2022 for the audience.
0: Yeah, you know, so uh, at IDC on an annual basis we do our top ten predictions and all. So I'm not going to repeat that. We had a lot of great predictions out there, <clears throat> ranging from what will be the impact of increased regulation, or where is conversational AI heading, or what is going to happen in terms of you know. The only thing that I'd like to mention from there before I actually talk to you about my you know something that we couldn't accommodate that time, and I'll talk to you today. But the only thing that I would like to mention, you know, when initially we started talking about AI, we were very fixated by industrial use cases, right? How it is transforming financial services or healthcare or retail. We are seeing in, as part of our annual prediction that there'll be an explosion of use cases, you know, AI will be seeping across the business critical functions like sales and marketing and HR and you know finance it is no longer just limited to the back-end functions like you know IT and security and all so that was one which I thought it was important because that cuts through across all industries but my personal favorite that I would like to share with you which uh, we couldn't accommodate because we are limited to only 10 uh, is actually the multimodal AI you know I mean I am you know we all know that uh computer vision has dominated ai technologies right and especially at the edge and uh image recognition by the way you know i mean is in ai training and a lot of synthetic data being used there but i i don't know if you have seen but uh, i think there was a very interesting video that you know um folks actually uh walk into you know a fast food joint and you know in the past uh, you could even when you're chatting for example right it's one thing right it's either text or it's either voice and this particular multimodal ai you know there was an avatar which was reacting interacting with the individuals that it could actually not just you know see your expressions and recognize your emotions and empathy and change the tone accordingly right so i believe that you know <clears throat> multimodal ai <clears throat> using different types of data sources text and audio and video and your eyes expressions and all of that, the you a know, multitude of cases, right? So it will change, you know, uh, it, it's all powered by language, improvement in language understanding and conversational yeah. AI capabilities, but the use cases are like, you know, it can be used in healthcare, uh, you know, it can be used in, um, you know, advertising, it can be used in uh, cashless, uh, you know, shopping. Um, the list goes you know a 3d fitness coach um, uh, yeah. as a, a finance assistant i feel uh, the multimodal ai will empower this it's the early stages of metaverse but it will empower the uh, the digital avatar and <clears throat> which is not just you know automa- you know customer service agents automated customer service agents have sure. completely exploded but it is just one tiny piece it doesn't interact with you right in that way it's just yeah. text but I believe that multimodal AI it will start. It will expand the AI use cases at the edge, like for a customer service kiosk, uh, for uh, uh, you know healthcare, 3D coach, e-learning, in-store kiosk systems. The list goes on. So I personally believe that we'll see a lot more of it right in here in 2022. Uh, we yeah. already started seeing it, and it will be coming in a big way. I'll, no, I'll share awesome. one more thing, which I yeah. Sure. Um, One more thing that I would like to kind of say, this is my favorite prediction, but I'll also see during COVID when we were all stuck at home and you know we're all working from home. And if we run into some kind of an issue, the field service management, right? The the whole enterprise service management and field service is a part of it, there'll be an explosion of integration of cross-domain technologies, AI and ER. So think about, you know, whereas a field technician going to you. And doing certain service and hold that coordination, they would need some remote assistance self. And with these AI and AR technologies combined together, there are some very innovative startups in this space that can give, you know, from our research, instead of eight hours to resolve an issue, it took only 15 to 20 minutes to resolve. And in a lot of cases, it gives me empowers me self-service, right? So if I'm working remotely, during COVID, I was not happy somebody coming into my house or so even others were not happy to come to my house and if they needed help. So the combination of, I think it will be across domain technologies. It also can be multimodal in that ways, but it will be used for, uh, you know, uh, it's no longer the silos that only AI, but AI and then augmented reality, computer vision will actually transform some of the ways of how we live and operate. So that will be my yeah. other
1: one. That is awesome. No, I think, you know, the the one common theme I saw in all the three you mentioned is the pervasiveness of AI, right? I mean, being across everything. And I like to believe that, like, you know, we'll get to a point where people don't ask the question, is it on the cloud anymore, right? And so because it's assumed that it's going to be in a scalable infrastructure that's globally available and you don't have to worry about maintaining infrastructure, right? Similar to that, AI is going to be so pervasive that it's going to become invisible, Right, and it's just be embedded as a fabric into everything we do, be it business process, be it interaction with a virtual bot versus a human who's wearing an AR glasses. And I love that thing. I'm super bullish on that cross domain technology. You know how the confluence of all these different things can come in. I've invested in a similar company uh, which is building a, a, ri- a virtual real estate uh, marketplace called Superworld. And what they're really trying to do is actually map the physical world in a virtual en- uh, environment and then allow creators and builders to build in the virtual place and bring all the things they love about their physical world into the virtual world and experience yeah. it through you know, augmented reality and things like that. So it's very fascinating. But you, to your point, just the cross-domain technologies coming together to solve really, uh, you know, you're, we're, we're getting closer and closer to humanizing technology to really get that human touch in everything we do. Fascinating, yeah. great predictions,
0: Rita. Yeah, I think I'm. I'm. I feel very blessed that we are living in some fantastic times to see them. You remember when the first times the series, the Alexas and the Cortanas came? Yeah. Uh, we we really were able to kind of you know get a pulse on it, and it was no longer abstract, right? But things have come such a long way. I mean, lo- that time I remember, a lot of people did not realize that it was AI, conversational AI, powering all that, <laughs> right? I mean, but. It was there and it's, it's just that it will become seamless and very pervasive and AI, I kind of, since I'm a little bit biased because I focus in this area, but I strongly believe that it is going to be the true differentiator for any organization that wants to not just survive, but thrive and be a force to be reckoned with for a foreseeable future.
1: That's awesome. Ritu, this was such a blast. Where can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the internet?
0: They can find me on LinkedIn. They can follow me on Twitter. They can shoot me an email on my rjothi at idc.com anytime.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. This was a blast. I mean, I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Likewise, Ganesh. It was a pleasure to see you. And, uh, you know, we should do more of these because it's we always been, more it's of been exciting to it's, learn it's from a, each
1: other. Like I said, right, I mean, AI is such a community oriented technology. I mean, this is the only way to do AI, in my view. So, thanks again for taking the time, Ritu. Thank you. We shouldn't wait for another few years to do this together again. We should do it sooner.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye bye. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.